Hello, and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tom Pearson, and today I'm joined by partner and head of corporate investigations and forensics at CMS South Africa, Zakia Mohammed. Now, Zakia is a lawyer specializing in anti-bribery and corruption, compliance, as well as data protection, and he's got over 13 years of experience to bring to the party. Zakia regularly advises and assists clients with compliance on numerous pieces of legislation, including that ever-looming Personal Protection of Information Act in South Africa, anti-bribery and corruption, whistleblowing, anti-money laundering, and cyber crime. And today, we're going to be exploring a rather interesting relationship, that between data privacy, compliance, and cybersecurity. So let's dive right in. Now, Zakia, cybersecurity and data compliance often go hand in hand. However, there does appear to be a disconnect between meeting compliance requirements and fully utilizing modern and effective cybersecurity measures. So in your opinion, how would you describe this relationship between the the, the cybersecurity requirements, like true requirements for a modern African business and compliance standards as set in legislation and regulation? Thank you very much, Thomas. You're absolutely right. Cybersecurity and compliance do indeed go hand in hand. So it goes without saying that it is critical for organizations to ensure compliance with the relevant data privacy legislation. And this is across all of the jurisdictions in which they operate. Now, a failure by an organization to comply with such legislation can expose an organization to significant regulatory risk. And this may include administrative or other sanctions that may be issued by a regulatory body against the organization, as well as significant reputational risk. Now, if you followed the media in the last two or three years, you've seen large organizations in the financial services sector in South Africa that have been reported for significant data breaches, etc. Now, that's obviously any organization's worst nightmare because you don't want to be um, in the media having suffered a significant data breach because ultimately it loses customer confidence and the life of the organization. And that's taking away from the possible regulatory fines that may be issued against your organization, et cetera. And so for me, organizations should avoid looking at regulatory compliance in a vacuum. And when organizations look into the measures they implement to ensure regulatory compliance, it is advisable that they do so practically to ensure that such measures are implemented meaningfully. In this respect, I think that it's important for organizations to understand what the legislation requires of them and then also consider the nature of their respective operations in order to best decide how to implement appropriate data privacy and cybersecurity measures that will ultimately strike the right balance between ensuring regulatory compliance as well as having the right cybersecurity measures and tools will meaningfully protect the organization from cybersecurity and data privacy risk. Now, multinational organizations, specifically organizations that may be operating in several jurisdictions throughout the continent, do need to be cognizant of the regulatory requirements in all of the jurisdictions in which they operate. And this is to ensure alignment with their 
internal data privacy and cybersecurity measures throughout the organization so that these can be given effect to meaningfully in all of the re- relevant jurisdictions. Now, what you don't want, for example, is you know an organization having data privacy policies, but the way that it's applied in one jurisdiction differs from another jurisdiction yep, because that's yep. going to cause confusion, there's going to be misalignment, and they're not going to handle data privacy effectively from a compliance perspective, from a, a priv- data privacy perspective, practically, and also if they've been uh, hit with a data breach, if they're not consistent throughout the organization, it's going to cause a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, look, I'm interested in your experience. Is there ever a direct clash still between uh, uh, regulatory compliance requirements and? best in practice cybersecurity. Now, something that springs to mind for me, being a a novice tech head, I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert, is is cloud-based data solutions and some older um, African uh, uh, regulatory environments that, that deny or prevent utilization of cloud solutions and instead require local data collection and storage. So say, for example, we know that cloud-based data retention and, and monitoring is actually, in a lot of cases, a lot safer than utilization of local you know, server-based uh, um, uh, data storage. But do you, is that clash still occurring? Or is a company saying, look, we know it would be much safer to process and store our data in the cloud with like AWS next level security, but the local regulatory environment is forcing us to use outdated local servers, which are really vulnerable. Do, do, do we still see that clash occurring? It's, it, that's, this is quite an interesting question, Thomas, because for me, I think that at the end of the day, uh, and, and I think you started off at this point where you said you, you're not a technology novice, right? <laughs> um, and so I think most people are in, in any organization. Technology is changes all the time. And it's very difficult to keep up with those technology changes, especially if you're not in the IT industry. And so as human beings, what we generally do is we tend to find comfort in what we know. And what we tend to know is the historic way that we save and deal with data. And so we're a little bit scared of the cloud. We're potentially scared of trying a new way of hosting and saving our data, etc. And I think when you're looking at it from a regulatory perspective versus a practical perspective, um, certainly from a South African regulatory perspective, if you look at the way the legislation is crafted, it's not crafted in a way that will force an organization to stick to traditional forms of data storage and that sort of thing. But what it does do is requires organizations to really look holistically at the way they're processing personal data in the organization and also requiring of organizations to have cybersecurity measures to mitigate the cybersecurity risks that they face and also to mitigate um, the personal data being compromised in any way. And so what that means at a practical level is that an organization should actually look at this and say, okay, the legislation requires me to have certain systems and controls in place to manage personal data and to protect it, right? So that means I need to have cybersecurity tools in place. It It means I need to have 
document retention policies in place. It, it, it means I need to possibly have a segregation between who is allowed to have access to certain types of information with the organization, etc. And you then need to say, okay, given the nature of my business, given the size of my business and the kind of information that I process, how do I go about um, doing this at a practical level so that on the one hand, I achieve regulatory compliance <clears throat> by having these systems in place, but at the same time, I'm doing it in a manner that actually suits my business and I protect my business from the various cybersecurity risks and that sort of thing. For sure. So it's, it's in most cases, it's more of a rule-based, uh, you know, pragmatic approach rather than a something as uh, uh, as prescriptive as this is where your data must be kept. This is how it, it you know it must be stored. Instead, it's look you can you can store it where you want, but you've got to make sure that you've got these data processing rules in place, these cybersecurity standards in place, and 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 so on. So it interplay but not as rigid as as one might might think and look you mentioned cyber risk here and 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 look the the ultimate existential risk for a lot of businesses i think in this day and age is a truly seismic um cyber attack whether that prevents ongoing business through um you know ddos attacks or whether it's ransomware or whether it's more malicious in in actually data theft Let's go top level here. What what are you seeing as the greatest or most common stumbling blocks for African organizations trying to mitigate the risk of cyber attacks? And in your experience, does this uh, do these stumbling blocks differ on a jurisdictional basis? Yeah, this is an interesting one because I think you can look at it, um, you know, holistically for, for organizations globally. And I don't just think on the African continent itself, but because these, these stumbling blocks, as I've seen them, having done work um, across the continent and globally as well, I've seen a lot of similarities. And I think for me, one of the biggest stumbling blocks that an organization faces when it comes to um, cybercrime, cybersecurity uh, and data privacy is user behavior. And I say this because ultimately, regardless of the size of the organization, regardless of where the organization is based, um, regardless of the industry in which the organization operates, employee behavior is a key risk to any organization in relation to cyber attacks. And the reason why I say this is because employees are ultimately an organization's first line of defense in mitigating cybercrime and other commercial crime risks. So the way I see it is whilst an organization may have the best cybersecurity tools, if there's a lack of understanding of what cybersecurity risk is uh, by employees and what behavior is expected of them in order to mitigate this risk, then this ultimately creates significant vulnerabilities for an organization. And I think I can use an example to illustrate this. Um, if employees do not appreciate the risk posed, for example, by a phishing email, um, they may end up clicking on a malicious link which may be embedded in that phishing email and this would ultimately allow for malicious software to be uploaded onto the organization's network. Or this may also result in an employee disclosing sensitive or confidential information to cyber criminals if such employees follow malicious links in emails. And then they capture sensitive data requested on malicious websites to which they may be directed. So this is one example of where user behavior 
can create that vulnerability. Another example is, for example, we're talking about cybersecurity and that sort of thing, but it is in the broader context of data privacy and protecting personal information and the like. What about an employee who, for example, prints in hard copy a very sensitive document with very sensitive data on it, and they take it off-site, off-premises, and they leave that document lying around? That is a case of a negligent employee um, not keeping information secure. And so this is another example of where user behavior poses a risk. I always use an example of, for example, shoulder spying. So let's say you you you've, you would have often seen this um, when you're flying um, either locally or abroad and the person sitting next to you is doing some work. Um, what if they're busy working on a sensitive proposal and you potentially are on the same flight to go and pitch to the same client and you're a competitor of the person sitting next to you and that person's working on a proposal not realizing that you can actually see what they're doing on the computer so that's another way of um, possibly compromising data or yep. um, confidential information then lands in, 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 in the next person's hands because if I'm a competitor and you're busy working on your pricing information I then know how you're going to price your proposal before we both go and pitch to possibly a similar client. So for me, user behavior is is a key stumbling block. Um, and there are others tied to that as well. So for example, what I've also seen in organizations is many organizations, you know, when it comes to regulatory compliance, um, the first thing they want to do is draft policies and procedures. And the and and I think and and I'm being a little bit flippant when I say this. I think sometimes as human beings we we're a little bit lazy and we try to look for the easiest way out of doing something. So we look for a template or we'll go and do an internet search for maybe a data privacy policy and then we just try to repurpose it. And so yeah, give give that box a tick. That's yeah. done. You know, on to the next one, and it's yeah. utterly ineffective. <laughs> Absolutely, because then you. You recraft the policy and you focus so much on the policy itself without actually giving thought to, well, what do I need to do practically? Um, and does this policy give meaning to what we are meant to do at a practical level? So, for example, um, I once looked at a policy, It was a, and, and I'm using a different example, it was a whistleblowing policy, uh, and a client asked me to review it. I reviewed the policy and there were certain escalation procedures in that whistleblowing policy. And I understood the client's organization and I said, who occupies this particular role within your organization? And the response I got is, well, we don't have that role in the organization. And so, and my response was, well, why do you have them in the chain of escalations in your policy then? And the response was, oh, well, we use a template and, you know, we just sort of tried yeah, to... Yeah, that was cribbed, cribbed, cribbed online, uh, you know, without a second thought. It's, <laughs> it's yeah. quite, quite common, I imagine. Yeah, and I think I think when it comes to policy drafting, I think you know it. It really it's it's as simple as you know your organization, you know um, how your systems work. Have a look at your systems, and then draft the policies in a manner that gives effect to your systems, and and you do them together. So if your systems are lacking, you improve your systems to make sure you've got the right controls in place. But then you draft your policy to align with those systems, because then you've got a meaningful compliance program when it comes to data privacy and cybersecurity. Um, and so for me, that's the second one. 
and I know I'm like, I know you've asked me for one stumbling block, and I'm now mentioning uh, three because uh, uh, they all interplay. They do all interplay. You, they absolutely you, you, do. You have you have permission for number three, Zakia? <laughs> okay, good. Because number three for me is very important because it's another one that I've seen many organizations do. They've got the best policies, they've got the best systems, but no one in the organization knows what they are because it was literally just done by a team. Uh, the policies were approved, but then it was not communicated to the entire organization. And so effective communication and training is key uh, in ensuring a strong cybersecurity and data privacy compliance environment. And so at the outset, it's important to train employees effectively on your policies so that they fully understand the behavior that's expected of them. And then once the training is done, it's important to remind people because um, compliance is not something everybody does every single day. Um, Cybersecurity is not something you know, uh, everybody's going to think about every day. Um, For example, if you've got someone working in HR or someone working in procurement, they're not necessarily going to think of cybercrime every day. But if you send a monthly newsletter, uh, just reminding people to be vigilant when dealing with emails or vigilant of cybersecurity risks, it just brings it top of mind again. Um, And also possibly considering yearly training on your policies just to make sure everybody has not forgotten um, what your policies say when it comes to that. So for me, these three are the key stumbling blocks that I've seen for many organizations. I don't think that they necessarily differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction across the continent. Um, I think these are common threads that one would find with many organizations because for me, I've often seen, you know, compliance tends to be a bit of a grudge purchase in an organization. It's not necessarily a profit center. Um, and so sometimes some organizations tend to not pay enough attention to their compliance functions. 100%. And it does really come down to people because they are your single greatest asset when it comes to cyber security and information security. And they are 100% the weakest link. And one thing that I've experienced that separates those corporates who truly take this seriously to those that are looking to tick that compliance box is is actually those that are willing to hire what are known as white hat hackers or ethical hackers to test and probe their existing protective capabilities. And another thing that surprises a lot of companies when they do this is 99%, 90% of the time, I don't say to put a figure on it, These ethical hackers will not be bombarding your firewall with malicious code and Trojan horse hacks and, you know, backdoor exploits. They're going to physically come to your premises and they're going to rely upon human error and weakness as their main course of action. The single most effective way to upload malicious um, uh, software to a, to a server to this day is still either a phishing email, but secondly, and even more effectively, what's known as the pen drop. You sprinkle USB pens into the car park of your target organization with one document on it that says salaries. Now, show me an untrained employee that isn't going to find that USB, boot it up and go, ooh, salaries, how interesting. Double click and boom. That's the malicious software and you're in. So my call to action here is policies are not enough. 
off-the-shelf firewall protection, meh, it's par for the course. If you're really taking things seriously, test it and and let your employees know that this is occurring and the outcomes of what occurs because they are going to remember the day that, you know, uh, uh, Shelley from Accounts accidentally uploaded malicious software via a pen drop you know, anonymize it, obviously, um, then they are going to remember even an annual piece of training. But Zakir, that, 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 that's my take on it, if you agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree, because people, people would remember practical examples. And I think that, you know, these pen testing and, and the way that you've mentioned it being done is incredibly effective because it really brings to life the risks that you would inform your employees about in training. So it's it's a combination of all of it because you need to target it holistically, right? So yes, training for me is critically important, but at the same time, once people are trained, it's you test them because most of the data breaches that I've seen uh, in organizations have resulted from uh, user behavior because it's easy enough to put in the right cybersecurity software and tools and you can pen test the effectiveness of that. But where your vulnerabilities tend to lie is um, with your with your employees clicking on malicious links or alternatively, um, like you said, picking up a, a, a flash drive uh, in the parking lot and then plugging it into your network systems because people are by nature curious. Um, and what I've often seen cyber criminals do is play on people's vulnerabilities. So either through um, playing on the human characteristic of being curious or uh, playing on urgency, because urgency creates panic in the mind of anyone. So I've often seen phishing emails that are titled urgent, please click on the link to urgently secure your account or whatever. Immediately when somebody sees the word urgent, they start panicking and when they panic, they stop thinking rationally and so they don't act rationally. So I've often seen cyber criminals play on human emotion. And sometimes individuals have been targeted by cyber criminals, for example, through, uh, you know, the promise of riches or uh, substantial savings. If you uh, act now and, you know, come onto our website and buy this product, or if you subscribe to this, you'll make so much money or whatever the case may be, it, it plays, they play a lot on human emotion. And so user behavior for me is the single most critical risk that organizations need to focus on. And it needs to be tackled from every perspective. So you can't, I don't think you can, you should just choose one uh, way of tackling it. I think you should consider every possible method you can employ your, you can employ in your organization to ensure that you curtail this risk as much as possible. A hundred percent. Be very mindful that you're going up against a human emotion such as greed, curiosity, emotional vulnerability and urgency. You know, that's you you can buy incredibly effective off the shelf cybersecurity standards, you know, data management and, and firewall it's how that's implemented and who is implementing it, which is where the gaps appear. And look, talking of talking of security standards, much was made, not as much recently, but the Minimum Information Security Standards, or MIS, which is a South African um, directive, um, trying to set out what are minimum standards for, for data management and cybersecurity. 
it's an example of a government-backed kind of standard-setting program, but in your mind, minimum requirements here, are these are these enough? Or are, are the gaps, you know, the ability to keep regulation like that up to speed just impossible when it comes to the speed at which technology can outpace it? Yeah, I think I think when it comes to mis, you, one must bear in mind that these these minimum information security standards primarily relate <clears throat> to information that has been classified as restricted, confidential, secret, or top secret to protect national security. And so, these standards apply to public bodies rendering a public service, as well as private bodies processing information that is of importance to national interest. So it doesn't apply to all organizations. Um, And also it's not meant to be, you know, an all-encompassing data privacy legislation. Right, right. And so whilst these standards are are of critical national importance, you can't look at it in, in isolation. And the way I see it is ultimately when it comes to issues of data breaches and cyber attacks and looking at how best you can curb these risks, you need to look at it holistically in order to meaningfully address these risks. And I think I can sum it up in in one phrase is you may have the best legislation, you may have the best regulatory prescripts and standards, but if these are not implemented meaningfully at a practical and an organization level, then, you know, this legislation and regulatory prescripts and, and standards cannot be faulted for not protecting an organization from a data breach or cyber attack because We can ultimately have world-class pieces of legislation and standards, but if they're not used effectively, if they're not implemented effectively, they're absolutely meaningless. Once again, it it, it comes down to there is no shortcut here. No one's going to paint the perfect picture of how this is done. There's nothing off the shelf. If you really want to improve your standards, you've got to get dirty. You've got to get in there. You've got to look at your own individual needs, requirements as a business, as an entity, and, and go from there rather than looking for a, 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 a shortcut or a quick fix. So I, I want to pivot onto a, a slightly different topic here, which is regulatory uh, notification obligations. Now, this is something which seemed to really come about and really accelerate in the last 10 years or so. And I don't know whether it was, this is my take on it. Government started to realize that cyber breaches were inevitable. It is going to happen. There is nothing we can do to really stop this totally. So what's more important, piling in more regulation around preventing these or when they actually occur, the notification obligations to customers to let them know in a timely, efficient and useful and practical manner, this data breach has occurred. You are at risk. We need your help to help mitigate this, but then also opening up the door to liability, financial recompense, and so on. So we've seen this type of regulation um, uh, come onto the scene in quite dramatic uh, fashion in the last 10 years. But when it comes to multi-jurisdictional impact of data breach, you know, technology and data are often very borderless. One breach can expose a company in multiple jurisdictions. What, to your mind, are some of the most important things that African businesses need to be aware of when it comes to the regulatory notification obligations in in, in the face of a, a data breach? 
Yeah, I think this is this is such an important question because, and I think you've made the point initially by saying, you know, on the one hand, <clears throat> you want the regulations and, and the legislation to focus a lot on the preventative measures so that the organizations have the right systems in place. And then on the other hand, you've got the, the, the legislation having moved toward now making organizations accountable by, re, by reporting a data breach to uh, a data subject whose data may have been compromised or to the regulator. So now, now they're being held accountable to not sort of brush things under the carpet, uh, which I think is which I think is a good thing. I think that, you know, throughout the continent, now you're dealing with so many different jurisdictions and you've got some organizations that uh, would have businesses in numerous numerous jurisdictions. And for me, the starting point and the most important thing is in every single jurisdiction that you operate in, understand what the lay of the land is when it comes to the data privacy legislation in each of these jurisdictions. Look at the similarities between the legislation and look at where there are nuances or differences in some of the legislation so that you can then craft policies in your organization that can meaningfully give effect to all of them in the most practical and feasible way. Now, when it comes to data breach notifications, there's sometimes differences between the regulatory requirements in one jurisdiction to those in another jurisdiction. Now, the one commonality in, in most of them is to report to the, the data privacy regulator as soon as possible. But then you've got some legislation that, that attaches a specific time period to that. So in some jurisdictions, you may have the regulatory notification requirement be you need to notify us as the regulator within 72 hours. No, within you need to notify us as soon as possible or within a period of 72 hours from discovering the data breach. And then you've got some legislation like ours, which doesn't attach a specific time period to it, but it does state you must report to the relevant data subject or our information regulator here in South Africa as soon sure. as possible. So what does as soon as possible mean? Does it mean in a day? Does it mean in two days? Um, I would obviously say within as soon as reasonably possible. Now, obviously that needs to be assessed on a case by case basis, but you know, there's a whole lot of questions that can come about when it comes to these notification periods, because at the end of the day, you know, an organization, when you've been hit, hit with a data breach, there's so much that you also don't know. You may not know the full scale of your breach at the time that, you, that, you, that you've discovered there's been a compromise. You need to investigate it. You need to understand, you know, how pervasive has it been? Um, how, many, how many jurisdictions has it affected? You know, there's so much that comes into play. And if you need to report within 72 hours, for example, it really does put a lot of pressure on organizations to, to then have to report the incident. But I mean, be that as it may, the legislation is as it is and organizations need to comply. So organizations need to give careful consideration to what the incident response plans look like and how they're going to deal with these incidents. So for example, if you're a multinational organization operating in numerous jurisdictions, you need to have an incident response plan that can properly um, set out what you need to do if you've been hit, for example, with a data breach in South Africa, you know, you can't just look at it in isolation because what if the data breach affects another jurisdiction in Africa? So you need to have an incident response plan that can meaningfully allow you as an organization 
to holistically have the same way of kicking off your your relevant processes uh, in dealing with your incident breach in in every jurisdiction so that there's consistency so that it's not dealt with you know um unsystematically uh people don't know what they need to be doing so you want to have throughout the organization across all of your jurisdictions possibly one team that is your incident response team that immediately is going to be called into action regardless of where the data breach is so that they always know exactly this is how we're going to deal with the particular incident for sure and this is you know it goes to the principle of the gold standard you know if you're knowing that you're going to have to conduct yourself in a certain manner in multiple jurisdictions the best thing you can do is find the highest tide find the most robust or or a prescriptive uh, regulatory regime and adhere to that in all of the jurisdictions in which you're operating you know instead of trying to have a multi-tier system you know if you do x you are going to be in compliance in every single jurisdiction because you are adhering to the highest standards um, you know, set in, in any of those jurisdictions. Uh, Zakir, a, a final question and a thought from you, if I may. It, it, I'm just going to say the question outright because I have my own very strong feelings here, okay? Is data privacy only really about regulatory compliance or is there so much more to it than that? I think that for me, this is the most important question. And it's something that I always try to, to advise clients on and make people aware of in the regulatory landscape is that when it comes to not just data privacy, but any type of commercial crime um, risk that an organization face, for me, it's, it's more, more, more than just regulatory compliance. So in my view, data privacy is definitely more than just regulatory compliance. So whilst Regulatory compliance is, of course, a critical and key component of data privacy. For me, organizations should develop the mindset of looking at data privacy from the perspective of doing all that is necessary and implementing all of the necessary measures required to ensure compliance with the relevant regulatory prescripts on the one hand, and also importantly, on the other hand, ensuring that the organization has the necessary processes and procedures in place to ensure that data is managed responsibly, as well as to ensure that the business is protected from the ever-increasing scourge of cybersecurity risk. Because for me, this will go a long way in protecting an organization from the severe financial and reputational damage that one may incur as a result of an incident of cybercrime or data breach. Because ultimately, you know, regulatory compliance is just one key component, a critical component in the chain, but if you're just going to do the bare minimum, how are you effectively protecting your business? 100%. And look, my thought here as well is if you are a company that takes it to the next level and goes, okay, what if we could turn the way that we protect our customers' data actually into a unique selling point or into a customer retention um, solution? You know, it. it more and more awareness globally of the value that your own personal data holds, I think it's something that more corporates need to be playing into and actually using as a customer retention or a customer attraction method to say, 
regulatory compliance is the absolute baseline for us. Instead, we've chosen to go next level. You know, we have triple lock security for data. We will never sell your data to third parties. We will alert you to any kind of data mistake in 24 hours, even if the regulatory standard is 72. I do feel like there's an emerging trend for corporates to start going down that kind of um, a commercial uh, messaging route, the, the customer benefit route, so much further than the basic regulatory standards that are, are prescribed in law. Are you are you seeing this trend as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we live in a diaspora where people are very alive to the fact of how much of their personal information is out there. And it creates a lot of confidence in the mind of the consumer if you know you're doing business with and you choose a supplier um, or a service provider that places a lot of emphasis in protecting your personal information and that they have robust and meaningful systems in place to protect your personal information, it goes a very long way into fostering long-term business relationships. Because ultimately, when there's been a significant data breach, the first thing an individual is going to think about is, well, they had my personal information, they've not compromised me. What risk does it put to me in my personal life now? What part of my information has now gone into the hands of a cyber criminal? You know, where else am I vulnerable? And so already it taints the reputation of the organization in the eyes of their consumer. And so if it is one of your core principles that you as an organization conduct your business in a manner that is responsible, that yes, you are regulatory compliant because that is important to you, but you actually go even further than that. And it's part of the culture of your organization to always do better and go the extra mile. You certainly gonna build a stronger client base uh, in the long term. Fantastic. Well, Zakia, that does bring us to time, I am sad to say. But thank you for joining me today. This has been a very enlightening discussion. Yeah, it most certainly has. Thank you very much, Thomas. uh, And thank you for your time as well. You're more than welcome. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. If you are new to the Africa Legal Podcast, you can find us wherever you get your normal podcasts. Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts. Amazon podcast, even Amazon Music now, we are very happy to say. And as always, don't forget to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. So without further ado, this has been Tom and Zakia, and we're signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast. <laughs>